Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask you to speak. Speak. Any of my words that are not yours, Lord, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain and bear much fruit in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning to you again. This is an important Sunday for our parish. It's not the beginning of the liturgical year. That's the first Sunday of Advent. It's not the beginning of the calendar year per se, but it is the beginning of a visionary year. Today we have an annual congregational meeting where hopefully uh, the majority of the adults in our congregation will gather in here and we'll we'll hear a presentation of what we expect is in front of us and also what we are willing uh, and ready to thank God for in what's behind us. It's an important day for us as a congregation. And as I've been preparing for what takes place on this Sunday, I've been deliberating about many questions. What's ahead for us in 2023? What does God want for us? This year? What does it look like for us as a church to grow in health? How do we need to be encouraged? How do we need to be challenged? How is it that we continue to be a faithful Anglican witness in our community? How is it that we are to compel people into deeper discipleship to Jesus? How are we supposed to invite the lost into an encounter with Jesus? These are all really good and appropriate questions, especially as we're beginning this new year. And I've got some answers, some, though admittedly not as many as I might want. I I have some exhortations and some admonishment for our leadership, for our congregation and for myself. I've got some teaching and some emphases to share this year. I've got some dreams and hopes that I pray may come to pass But as I planned to share some of those things with you today, I decided I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm not going to. You see, the more I thought about how to cast vision for the year ahead and what to say, the more my attention was drawn to the appointed New Testament lesson for today. And actually, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And so without further ado, open your Bibles. Follow along. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 30. Follow along as I read that passage so it's fresh in our ears. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you can remember back to our sermon series in the book of Acts, ordinary time of 2022, Paul traveled to Corinth after he spent some time in Athens where he was preaching famously at the Areopagus or Mars Hill. When Paul got to Corinth, and we talked about this last year, he quickly got connected with two people, tent makers by the names of Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul ended up living with this couple for 18 months, making tents with them in their business. But more than just making tents, Paul was preaching and teaching alongside them as they shared the gospel with Corinthians who had never heard it, and as they discipled those who believed. Now, you might remember that Corinth was a particularly wretched place. Now, by wretched, I'm not talking about external indicators. On the outside, Corinth was flourishing. Flourishing. Although it was in Greece, Greece, Corinth had been destroyed by the Romans in the 2nd century B.C., and it was rebuilt as a Roman colony. It was the place to be. It became a thriving center of culture and leisure and travel and politics and trade. If magazines like Cosmopolitan and GQ were around in that day, they would have had their headquarters in Corinth. That's the nature of that place. But by spiritual indicators, Corinth was a wretched place. It was a cesspool of paganism and religious idolatry. And it was known in the region for its moral debauchery, which was probably why it was so attractive to so many. So why did Paul decide to spend so much time there? It is in part because Paul definitely understood how strategic was that city. It was a hub. It was a port city between Europe and Asia. And he knew the gospel could be spread throughout the Mediterranean if it could take root there. But I think the more important reason in Paul's mind was that he saw that the seeds of the gospel were indeed taking root there in a way that they just weren't in other places. The gospel was flourishing there. People were turning to the one true God, whether they were Jews or Greeks or Romans or whatever. They heard the gospel and believed. And so we do well to ask, well, what was the gospel that Paul was preaching to them? What, how was he so successful in his evangelism? What was the central focus of his message? 
What strategies was he using to reach them? Paul tells us here in this letter that he writes to the Corinthians after he left them. He says in verse 23, which we read, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. That's the message. Now, be, to be a little bit more descriptive, imagine Paul tells the Corinthians there's a Jew named Jesus who was over there in Judea and he was executed on a cross for you. Do you understand how, at the very least, foreign this would be to people? What's more, it might sound fairly ridiculous, irrelevant. Imagine you're a Corinthian living in one of the most prosperous and livable cities in the ancient world. The best of art and shopping and leisure and celebrity and education and architecture was all around you. Philosophers and debaters would come to your city to speak in the porticos and the temples which lined the streets. Retired Roman officers and other powerful men would stroll up and down the streets, past the shops and the fountains. And there among them, you hear a weird tent-making Jew talk about a crucified God. Do you need that? I don't think so. That's not actually a captivating message. If you're a Corinthian who's supposed to stop and listen to some guy trying to garner a following, there are two things you might want from him. One, show me something I've never seen before. Show me a a, a powerful feat or some astounding display. Or second, tell me something I've never heard before, like some new marvelous philosophy or lofty idea that I'll try and wrap my head around. And so Paul tells them, okay, Jesus Christ was crucified for you. You've got to be kidding. You're trying to tell me that your God died on a cross. That's your feat? That's your lofty idea? Is that power? No. <laughs> That's weakness. Is that wisdom? It's foolishness. It's pathetic. And many Corinthians thought so. Paul says in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But why wouldn't everyone think so? Why isn't it folly To everyone, how could anyone hear that message and think it was worth giving your life to? Paul continues in verse 18. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Did you catch that? To those who are being saved. Among Paul's hearers, there were those in whom God's spirit was moving. To whom God's prevenient grace had come, opening their eyes and ears, helping them to understand just how evil and broken and empty and death-bound their lives were without Him. 
to these people, enabled by God's grace to believe, the message that Christ was crucified became not weakness, but the most powerful message there were. Not foolishness, but the wisest truth the world has known. The world begs for wisdom and power, and God's answer is Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Paul will go on to say in the next chapter, just two verses after our passage, so I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. There's no other message. Not one worth proclaiming, at least. Now to be clear, we need to understand that that Christ crucified were not the only two words that, that Paul spoke. It's not as if Paul never elaborated on what that meant. Just Christ crucified. Instead, Christ crucified for Paul is the shortest possible way to encapsulate the gospel. Think about that. Just two words. It's not the whole story or everything we need to know, but in one sense, it is everything. It's the tiniest Adam of the story of redemption, but with infinite implications. It's the building block of God's kingdom, and it's the shape of every stone in it. Christ crucified. Who is Christ? He's the Son of God. Why was He crucified? Because God loved humanity so much that He would die to bring us back. Christ crucified. Do we understand just how foolish and weak that is to the world? That the one almighty God would would or become one of us is absurd. Do you remember just how absurd? The idea that Jesus of Nazareth, the poor Jewish man that nobody's ever heard of, is supposedly the Son of God, is borderline unhinged. That God would die on a cross, or could, is the epitome of divine wimpishness. And that we would even need all of this in order to be saved is just a little bit childish. Indeed, this is how it looks to many. And yet, Paul says in this passage that the dramatic irony is that God has been pleased to display His great power and His great wisdom in these very things. Because of His love, the Creator God did empty Himself to become one of us. Jesus of Nazareth really is Almighty God joined to human flesh forever. Jesus really did die on the cross as history can attest, but not as some helpless victim, but rather in a volitional demonstration of divine power over sin, over death, and over evil. And we, broken, marred, helpless humanity, really do need the salvation that He gives. 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he shows it through things that seem stupid and weak and insignificant and poor. And if you want more proof, Paul says, just look at you. Just look at you. I mean, talk about stupid and weak and poor and insignificant. Paul writes in verses 26 to 29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not. Even you, Bill, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When you read this, do you hear the humor? For those of my generation, whenever I read this, you know what I think? Boom, roasted. That's what I think. Paul really cuts them down. And yet his purpose is not to insult them, although it kind of feels like it. He's building them up. But he's not building them up with what they have to offer. He's building them up with what God has to offer. He wants them to see that God has no need of the things that the world sees as wise and powerful and noble. All human striving is nothing. God has chosen what is lowly and humble and poor to manifest this very fact. And this is why so many of those who will actually come to receive the message of Christ crucified are themselves poor and humble and insignificant. Jesus himself makes this point in the Beatitudes, which we heard read this morning. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. What makes this clear? That Christ crucified is more than just the message of the gospel is that it, also, it is also the means. It's also the means. In other words, the cross is not just our doctrine. It's not just what we believe so that we can be saved. It actually is our ethic. It's our entire way of thinking and living. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That is a way of life that looks like crucifixion. Does that seem like wisdom and power to you? Indeed it is. I wonder, do you think that the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, do you think they wanted to hear the message of Christ crucified from Paul? I think in one sense the answer would be yes. I mean, clearly these people had repented and believed the gospel as God had enabled them to do, so they must have known that they needed the message. Yes, Paul, teach us about Christ crucified. But in another sense, Paul writes the entire letter of 1 Corinthians because they don't really want that message. 
They were undermining the foundational reality of Christ crucified in their thinking, their feeling, and their acting. They seem all too interested in the distractions of things that are much less important. Things that are of no importance. The Corinthians, just read the letter, they kept hoping that getting saved was a way to advance their knowledge or their status such that they might be able to exercise some superior position over one another. They were prideful, promiscuous, divisive, idolatrous, litigious, selfish, and unfaithful. And they seemed to wish that Paul would just tell them that they are free to do whatever that they wish to do because Christ is crucified. So deep down, I don't think that Christ crucified was the message they wanted. They wanted, in hearing the message, Christ crucified, to then find something better. They hoped that the gospel of Christ crucified, which Paul originally preached, might become something wiser or something more powerful. It's time for us to level up, Paul. So Paul essentially tells them, I will do no such thing because no such thing exists. Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Full stop. Lord knows that the Corinthian believers were not the only ones who who look at Christ crucified and hope for something better. Our culture is just as avid in the pursuit of wisdom and power as they were. So where do people today believe that they can find these things? Wisdom and power. Certainly there are religions that claim to offer these things. Some claim to have superior power through outward shows of force. I think Islam is a good example. Some claim to have superior wisdom through inward enlightenment like Buddhism. Some, like Baha'ism, claim that all religions are equally wise and powerful. In the West, I think more common than these supposed supernatural sources of wisdom and power are the humanist sources. Wisdom and power are found in scientific research and progress and application Wisdom and power are found in technology and innovation. They're found in education and self-improvement. They're found in political platforms and packs and posturing. They're found in entrepreneurship and marketing and the right financial investments. They're found in networking and online influencing. They're found in self-realization and self-acceptance. They're found in history the good old days, the way things used to be. They're found in celebrity and wealth. They're found in firepower and weapons development. They're found in tolerance and identity affirmation. For those who believe that they found wisdom and power in these things, what are they to think of Christ crucified? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To them, Christ crucified is nonsense. It has to be. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For us who by God's grace have come to believe, it's everything. 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 
There is a difficulty here, though. A difficulty for us as Christians. Do you know that what sometimes happens to us after we receive the gospel? Sometimes, even though we believe it, when we realize just how foolish Christ crucified is to the world out there, or when we begin to wonder in the face of difficulty or hardship, that maybe there really is more wisdom and more power somewhere else, we are tempted to try on some other sources. If we don't guard the supremacy of Christ as the wisdom and power of God, we end up syncretizing Christ with the wisdom and power of the world. In the church, it's just so easy for us to miss the point. So easy for us to change the message. So easy for us to tweak the means just a little bit. Churches and their pastors often don't present Christ first and foremost as Christ the crucified, but as Christ the entrepreneur, Christ the entertainer, Christ the prosperer, Christ the tolerant, Christ the militant, Christ the educator, Christ the American, Christ the influencer. Other times, a church's message may remain Christ crucified, but its means of following Jesus and proclaiming Him to the world looks nothing like the self-giving love of God who would be crucified for us. Instead, the message of Christ crucified looks like marketing and monetization. It looks like political rallying and endorsements. It looks like performance and cultural imitation. It looks like aggression and violence. It looks like visioneering and ambition. It looks like isolationism and separationism. It looks like manipulation and spiritual abuse. It looks like leadership turnover and non-disclosure agreements. It looks like pseudo-prophecies and falling all over the floor. It looks like self-help and self-improvement. You might have seen some of these things in your life. And no doubt Paul was seeing some of these things in the church in Corinth. What is so tragic about this is that as much as the world has passed Christ by because it does not accept the power and the wisdom that he offers, it has also passed Christ by because the church has simply not offered Christ crucified as our real power and wisdom. We may want good things, for God to be glorified, for our church to grow, for the lost to get saved. But instead of Christ's power and Christ's wisdom, our message and our means becomes something other than Christ crucified. And if it happens, what do we have? What really do we have? There was a historic and influential church that 
had this gorgeous archway that led to the front door of their church. And the people who built the church inscribed on that arch, we preach Christ crucified. A reminder to everyone who would walk through the arch and into that church. And over time, the the beautiful English ivy that was there on the property began to grow up the sides of the arch. And soon, people weren't watching, and the the ivy reached the inscription, and eventually it simply read, We Preach Christ. More time passed, and the inscription simply read, We Preach. And just a little bit longer, it just said, We. Just we. We save no one. Today, my goal is not to offer an indictment, not of the church or a church or our church. Rather, my goal is to remind us of the main thing, the thing that is the first thing and the last thing, and that must be Christ crucified. Our focus can so easily change. Yours, mine, ours. What we need is the constant recalibration to the fact that Christ crucified is the wisdom and the power of God. Christ crucified is the love of God on display. Christ crucified is the judgment of God satisfied. Christ crucified is the reconciliation of our relationships. Christ crucified is the reason for our worship. Christ crucified is the purpose for our lives. Christ crucified is the hope of the nations. Christ crucified is the promise of recreation. And so, living faith, what's ahead for us in 2023? By God's grace, it's Christ crucified. What does God want for us this year? Christ crucified. How do we need to be both encouraged and challenged? Christ crucified. How do we continue to be a faithful Anglican presence in our community? Christ crucified. How is it that we compel our people to lay aside their distractions and to follow Jesus more deeply? Christ crucified. How is it that we invite the lost out of their brokenness and into God's life, Christ crucified? How is it that we hold to truth in a relativistic and post-Christian culture, Christ crucified? How is it that we love our neighbors, actually love them, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, no matter what their identity might be, Christ crucified. How is it that we live faithfully to our wives and our husbands or live in godliness as single people? It is Christ crucified. How is it 
that we nurture the faith of our children and care for our aging parents. It's Christ crucified. How is it that we're supposed to work for the good of those around us, no matter where we work and what kind of work that we do? It's Christ crucified. How do we be good citizens of this complex, changing, and sometimes crazy nation? It's Christ crucified. How do we participate daily in the growth of God's kingdom? Christ crucified. Christ crucified is the center of our formation, of our community, and our mission. It's the water that we're baptized into. It's the bread and wine that sustains us. It's the spirit who transforms us. Indeed, Christ crucified is the message and the means of every day of our lives. It's the standard by which we measure every thought, every emotion, every action, beginning each new day of our lives, beginning each new year as a congregation, we can do no better than to recalibrate ourselves, saying with Paul, as he says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ crucified. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... Pray for your mercy, for the ways in which we turn your power and wisdom into something else. Grant us to remember what was our first love, the love of Christ crucified, the redemption of our souls and our bodies, the restoration of all that is good the hope of all creation. May we never move on from that message and that means the Lord have mercy. We pray, Lord Jesus, that as we accept and build our lives upon Christ crucified, that you would prosper us both inwardly and outwardly as a sign that that message really is the fundamental truth of all creation. Christ crucified. Christ crucified. We bless you. We praise you. And we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.